Y'all may be seated. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Genesis 1. We're going to read verse 1, and then we're going to jump down and read verses 26 and 27. If you don't have a Bible this morning, raise your hands. We've got extras here that we'd like for you to have, so you have a Bible, and you can read from the Bible this morning as we read and as we study the Word. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we ask you just to keep that. Keep that Bible, take it home with you, so that you can have God's Word with you all the time. Genesis 1, as I mentioned, we're going to read verse 1, and then skip on down to verse 26 and 27. Let's read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we are created in your image. That is such an amazing truth. We say it a lot, but I'm not sure we really think deeply about it. So, God, this morning, as we contemplate your image, who you are, your nature, your character, then God help that to transform the way we live, the way we operate, the way we relate to you, the way we view you, and then also let it change the way we relate to others. So God, now we ask that you be with Nehmer as he brings your word. Lord, we know that he is here this morning to preach the word and uh, he is not going after man's empty praise. But he wants your glory to be made manifest in the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Um, a few years back, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a movie that came out. Perhaps you saw it. Who saw the movie Castaway? Any of you guys saw that? A, few, a lot of you saw that movie. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was a movie. You had the main character in that movie. I can't remember the main character's name, but he was, he was played by Tom Hanks. And he was an uh, uh, employee for FedEx. I think he was a system analyst for FedEx. And uh, kind of the basic storyline of, of Castaway is that he's uh, on a FedEx plane, and there is a plane crash. I guess it's somewhere over the Pacific Ocean. And it turns out that he is the only survivor. He uh, makes it to the island, and he explores the island, and he finds out that it is a deserted island. There's absolutely, positively nobody there. And almost the whole movie is about this character's um, efforts to uh, survive on this island all by himself. And so he's got to learn how to take care of himself. He's got to learn how to get food. I think there was one scene, he had a bad tooth. I think there was a scene, he had to pull his own tooth. That, that's, that's manly right there. But <laughs> anyway, uh, he had to learn how to have uh, shelter to just to live off the land and survive, and he's there for a very long time. I think in the movie he's there for four years. And you know, the character starts out; he's kind of this 
you know, a pudgy, kind of overweight guy, but then by the time, you know, he spends four years on the island, he, he's, he's thin, he's strong, you know, he's got, you know, this beard, and uh, he's just a, this, this hairy, manly man, I guess. And while he's doing okay physically in the movie, he is surviving, he is eating, he is thriving in that way. Emotionally in the movie, he's kind of beginning to become unhinged. He's kind of going downhill emotionally. And the reason why is because he is completely and totally alone. He has no one on the island to talk to. He has no one on the island to connect with. And it gets to the point in the movie that he is so desperate for connection. He is so desperate for community. Remember what he does, those of you who see the movie? He he, yeah, volleyball, that's right. He created a, an imaginary friend. One of, one of the, the, the items that was uh, on the plane, I guess, was a, a, a Wilson volleyball. The brand was Wilson. And, uh, and he takes this volleyball, and he draws a little face on the volleyball, and he gives the volleyball a name. He names it Wilson, of course. And Wilson actually becomes a character in the movie. And he's got Wilson, his friend, you know, he's sitting there, and he's got the volleyball sitting there looking at him, and he's talking to the volleyball. He's having a relationship with the volleyball. He gets into arguments with the volleyball, and there's a point in the movie where he loses Wilson, and he is so overcome with grief, and just he's so devastated because he loses this thing that has been his friend and his companion for years. And I think one of the reasons why Castaway was such a compelling movie was because we all know that outside of relationships, outside of being in community with others, life loses its purpose. And it's totally believable to think uh, that, that a man trapped on a desert island could really go off the deep end and, and he's so emotionally needy, that he does create an imaginary friend and he starts talking to a volleyball. That's believable. We could see ourselves doing something like that. And it's not a stretch. And what made that character's predicament so difficult in the movie was not just that he was trapped on an island without hope of rescue. It, It was that he was trapped on an island alone. And the writers of this story knew, and we know, and all of us know, what the scriptures have told us all along. That it is not good for man to be alone. We are created to not be alone, rather we are created for community. And this is one of the underlying themes in this new sermon series that Pastor Steve and I uh, launched last week. And we'll be doing this over the next few weeks and and months. uh, This new series called... Jesus tribe. You see, there, there, is a, uh, there, there are many types of communities, right, around us. There are husbands and wives along with their children. There are brothers and sisters. There are friends. There are neighbors. There are larger communities uh, such as uh, nations. And all of these types of communities, as good as they can be, They are not the end goal for God. They're not the end game for God. These types of communities are to point us to something much bigger that God is doing. The geopolitical communities of this age will eventually give way to something better to come. Even marriage 
one of the most wonderful types of relationships, one of the most incredible displays of community, even marriage is not meant to go on and on and on into eternity as forever, as the Mormons teach. Even marriage is meant to point us to something bigger that God is doing. You have Jesus Christ the groom, and you have his bride, which is the church, and marriage is meant to point us to that incredible, beautiful relationship, that love relationship that Jesus has with his church and wants that relationship between Christ and his bride are fully perfected in the new heavens and in the new earth, there will be no more need for marriage as we know it. The, the, the type and shadow of our current marriages will give way to the thing that the type is pointing us to, namely Christ's special relationship with a community of people. And God, even now, is building a, a, this great community of peoples, this holy nation, this family that in this series we are calling the Jesus Tribe. And I really love that name, Jesus Tribe, because when, when I think of a tribe, I think of a people that are not loosely bound together. I think of a people, when I think of tribe, I think of a people that are tightly knit. That the people that have bonds that go deep. They're like close family. They're like super close kin. When I think of a tribe, I think of a people that will live for one another. That will serve one another. That will have each other's backs. And will even, even die for one another and sacrifice for one another if need be. That's what I think of when I hear the word tribe. And I think of this tightly bound group rallying around a great leader, a great hero who looks after the tribe, who protects the tribe, who, who fights for the tribe and crushes the enemies of the tribe and unites this tribe towards a common purpose and goal. And Jesus is the man who does all of those things for us. And as we continue forward with this series, we're going to be talking about this community, this tribe that God is building. And we'll talk about how your marriage, uh, your immediate physical family with sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, uh, uh, how, the, how the communities of, of this age are, are meant to teach us something about the larger Jesus tribe. But I want to take a step back this morning and I want to go to a, 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 back to this basic concept, this basic thought that you are created for community as opposed to being alone. And the foundation for that truth is that man is created in the image of God. Just like Pastor Steve read a few moments ago, man is created in the image of God and community is wrapped up in the very nature of, of who God is. And so today, we're going to take a look at this God who himself exists in community. This is shown to be true in the doctrine of the Trinity, this great revelation that shows us that there is one God who exists as three distinct persons. So we're going to talk about the Trinity. And the second thing I want to do this morning is explain what this amazing doctrine teaches us about God. And then the third thing that I want to do is focus on how we are made to be in community with that great God. So the first thing I'm going to look at is that God exists in community. Think about this question. When did community actually begin? I've asked people this before. I've asked Bible classes this before. And, uh, and, and some folks will say, well, community began 
with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's where community began. Others say, no, 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 it actually goes back a little bit before that. Community began with God and Adam in the garden. You see God and Adam having community with one another in the garden. Others say, no, 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 actually it goes back even before that. You think about the angels, right? There's a, there's a community of, of angels together with God, and that's, they'll say, was where community actually began. Now, the question, when did community begin, is actually a trick question. Because you don't see the beginning of community anywhere in the Bible because community never began. Community has always existed. And the very first community is, in, is found in the very first chapter of the first words in the Bible that Steve just read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what does that verse have to do with community? Well... Let me take you to another passage that sheds light on Genesis 1-1, and it's the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1. You know, those of you who are familiar with my teaching, you know how I love to go to the New Testament and see how it sheds light and informs our thinking and helps us to interpret and think about Old Testament passages. You can go to John 1-1, and uh, it's interesting that John is writing a book about Jesus Christ, and he begins his book with the same introduction as the book of Genesis. The same words as the book of, of Genesis. How does, how does John begin his book? What does he say? Yes, he says, in the beginning. Now that's no accident. That's not a coincidence that Moses, writing Genesis, begins his book in the beginning. And John just happens to pen those words as well in the beginning uh, that's no accident. John, on purpose, is borrowing language from Genesis 1 for a reason. You know, it's interesting, if you look at the other books about Jesus, like, well, you look at Matthew and Luke, and their books uh, on Jesus, they, give you, they, they, they begin their books by giving you an earthly genealogy of, G, uh, of Jesus. But John sets all that aside, and he goes way back to the beginning. What is John doing? John is connecting Jesus with Genesis. He's connecting Jesus with Genesis. Jesus didn't begin to exist 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And so John is purposely now connecting the dots, and he's saying, he, say, he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now that Word in this chapter, in John chapter 1, refers to Jesus Christ. And John is saying, hey, you, you know what? You know that beginning that the book of Genesis is talking about? Guess what, guys? Jesus was there. In the beginning was the Word. And after telling us that the Word was there in the beginning, John then says that this Word, this Jesus, was with God. Okay, so now how many persons do you have as, as being described as there in the beginning? In John 1.1, you have two, right? You have the Word, and then you have God. Now, John could have stopped there, but he didn't. He decided to make things more confusing. He tells us not only that the Word was there in the beginning, he was in Genesis 1-1, not only that he was there with God, but then guess what John says? He drops a bombshell on us, and he says the Word was God. Now, that is incredibly significant. And John begins to give us a clearer picture of what is only hinted at in the Old Testament, that there is a plurality in the Godhead. 
Now, you did not hear me say plural gods. Okay, don't leave here saying, well, Deemer said that there are plural gods. There are multiple gods. That's not what I'm saying. That's Mormonism. That's Greek mythology. That there is more than one God. The Bible is clear as can be that there is only one God. The scriptures go through great pains to tell us this over and over and over again. Remember the, the Shema, which all Jews in the, in the Bible days memorized, and a great many still have etched on their brains. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Great verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You think of the Ten Commandments. How does the Ten Commandments start off? You shall have no other gods before me. And on and on and on, the Bible declares, the Bible is emphatic that there is only one God. Yet the Bible also teaches us that this one God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they are co-equal, uh, they are co-eternal. They are distinct in persons, but of the same essence. And this is known as the doctrine of the Trinity. And and we get that word Trinity from two other words, tri and unity. Okay, so you have three persons united and bound together in a single purpose. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? Where does the Holy Spirit fit into the equation? Well, he was there in the beginning with God, with the Word as well. If you go back to Genesis 1, and you look at... Uh, Verses 1 and then verse 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in Genesis 1-1, we have God. In John 1-1, we have mention of the Word or the Son. And then in Genesis 1-2, we have mention of the Spirit of God. And there are various scriptures that point to the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to get into all those uh, today, but you have one that comes to mind is is Acts chapter 5, where you have the situation with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who uh, they lied. Uh, they, They were going to give a certain amount of money to the church, but they were sneaky and they decided to hold back some of that money from themselves, and the, uh, and, and the Apostle Peter uh, confronts Ananias, and he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, ascribing personhood to the Spirit of God. Okay, some people think the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. You can't lie to an impersonal force. Okay, he's lying to a person, but, but Peter then goes on m- to say even more than that, even more than the Holy Spirit is just a person, Peter then goes on to say, you have lied not to men, but to God. And there Peter is equating uh, the Holy Spirit with God. And there are other verses as well uh, that that speak to the uh, the personality and the deity of the Holy Spirit that we can get into another time. Uh, There are, are some... False teachings that have, 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 have tried to make sense of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, teachings that reject the Trinity, te- te- uh, religious groups that reject uh, the, the concept of the Trinity. There is one, one teaching that is called uh, modalism, and modalism means that, well, the, the people who are modalists will say, well, there's, there, there's, only, there's only one person, there's one God, and there's only one person person. 
And then you ask, well, how do you deal with the fact that there is a Father and there is a Son and there's clearly a Holy Spirit in the Scriptures? And what, what a modalist will say is, well, no, no, what that means is that there's one person, but that this one person uh, puts on different hats in different stages of history, for example. Kind of like a, one actor who, who puts on different costumes or different masks throughout different stages of history. So, you know, what you have in the Old Testament is God kind of putting on his father hat, his father costume, which you see in the, in the Gospels is you have the same person now getting out of that one costume and putting on another costume, so now he is the son, and then later on he gets out of the son costume, and he puts on another costume, and he's the Holy Spirit. So he's kind of, he's kind of one person who's kind of putting on and off different hats all the time depending on what he is doing. And there are lots of problems with modalism, one thing, if modalism is true, there are so many passages in the Bible that absolutely make no sense. For example, if there's only one person, then who in the world is Jesus praying to all the time? Who is he talking to the whole time? When he's on the cross and he's saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What's going on there? What is he, what is he talking about? There, there are clearly subject-object distinctions and relationships between these persons that are spoken of. Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, he's saying another is going to be coming. That's going to be a comforter to you. So there's just so many passages that, that are clear evidence of the distinction of these, of these persons. Not one person changing hats, but three persons coexisting at the same time. One of the coolest examples is of the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is being baptized, and he's going in the water, he's coming out of the water, there, there's the sun, but then also the scripture says that the spirit is descending on Jesus like a dove. And then what else happens? A booming voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son and him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So you have right there at the same time a manifestation of the father and the son and the spirit. And uh, if modalism is true, there's something disingenuous about this God who kind of is leading us on to think that there are three persons. But there's really not three persons at all. Uh, there is a, a, another uh, way that some try to deal with these, these persons described in Scripture. Uh, well, a, a clear example uh, are the Jehovah's Witnesses who will uh, retranslate John chapter 1, verse 1, which is what I just shared with you. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They have a translation of the Bible. It's an awful translation. I don't recommend it. Uh, it is called the New World Translation. And they changed John 1.1 1, 1 to say, and the word was a God. Not the word was God, but they stick that little word a in there, and that changes everything. So now they're saying that Jesus is not really God God. He's kind of God God, little God, you know, small g kind of God. But any Greek scholar worth his salt will tell you that there is absolutely no warrant for them uh, retranslating John 1 1. And then some people will say, well, it's just, it's, it's, I, they struggle with it. And they say, well, it just doesn't make sense that the whole Trinity is hard for me to get my, my arms around it, so I'm just going to reject that. And that's not, that's not, it's not right to reject something just because you can't fully understand it. Okay, there are all kinds of things in the Bible that I cannot completely get my arms around, like the sovereignty of God and the free choices of humans and how those things work together. I can't totally get my arms around it and yet it's taught in the Bible and so we need to accept that and we need to embrace that. Okay, I don't understand all the workings of 
uh, of God electing his people who are going to be saved before the foundation of the world, and yet at the same time, the gospel offer is a free offer to everyone. Okay, I don't exactly understand how all those things fit, but both of them are taught in the Bible, so I'm going to embrace them and bend my knee to the authority of the word of God, even though I can't completely understand it. I can't completely understand how God commands us all to to be baptized, to baptize one another, and we were going to have a baptism, and uh, that was prevented because of uh, the little rodent that Steve was talking about in the, in the baptistry, and now we have to put that off, and, and I don't understand why God would allow that. There's so much I don't understand about why God, uh, how God does some of the things that he does or allows some of the things that he allows, but just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that I reject it. God is, is way above us. And I cannot expect any of us to completely get our arms around everything about God. So our job is not, when it comes to the Trinity, our job is not to totally comprehend it. Our job is to apprehend it. Okay? And you can apprehend what the Word of God says, even if you can't totally, 100%, comprehend it. But the point is that the Bible is clear. There's only one God. The Bible is also clear that there are three separate distinct persons that are rightfully identified as God. And that is where we get the concept of one God, three persons, and the label theologians have given to that is Trinity. Now, what does this teach us about God? What are some things we can draw out about God from the doctrine of the Trinity? I think one significant thing that we see within the Godhead is unity and love in the midst of diversity. And this is very significant. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but they are not the same in how they relate to one another or even how they relate to us. There are different roles and different functions uh, of, among the members of the Godhead. They don't all do exactly the same thing. One clear example is that you have a father and a son. Okay, through, though Jesus Christ is equal with God the Father in terms of attributes and power, and though Jesus Christ is God, we see the Father in an authoritative position over the Son. Jesus Christ did not become the Son of God in Bethlehem in a manger 2,000 years ago. He has always been the Son of God into eternity past. The Father has always been the Father, and the Son has always uh, been the Son. And, and it is the Father who sends Jesus into the world. It is the, the Father who Jesus serves. It is the Father whom Jesus shows submission to. It is the Son who will receive an inheritance by the hand of the Father in the next age. It is the Son who sits at the right hand of the Father. And, and, we see, and yet we see that despite the differing roles of the Father and the Son within the Godhead... Despite the special authoritative role that the Father has, and despite the submissiveness of the Son to the Father, it is clear in Scripture that nowhere does this mean that Jesus is inferior to the Father or of lesser value than the Father. One of the reasons Jesus' enemies wanted to kill him is because Jesus considered himself equal with God. And in the Jewish religion in those days, to consider yourself equal with God was blasphemy and worthy of execution. And yet Jesus was not lying. He is equal uh, with the Father in terms of his divinity, in terms of his importance, in terms of his essence. He is just different in regard to role and function. 
And I would add that the Holy Spirit has a different role of his own and is under the authority of the Father. And he constantly points people to the Son. And so in the Trinity, we see diversity, but we see equality and unity at the same time. And that has implications for us. If we are made in the image of God, then it should not be surprising that God has given us opportunities to image forth that unity in the midst of diversity that is found in the Godhead. Think about marriage, where you have a husband and a wife, equal in worth, equal in value, equal in personhood, co-heirs to the inheritance that God the Father has for them. And yet, men and women are different. Husbands and wives have different roles and different functions according to the Bible. You have the husband who is the head of the home and, and the leading authority. And you have the wife who is submissive to that leadership. And her submission to her husband's authority does not communicate an inferiority on her part any more than the submissiveness of Jesus to the Father shows inferiority on his part. And I would contend that, that uh, a marriage that tampers with God's design for marriage is tampering with an image that God wants to show us about how things work within the Godhead. Where there is diversity, where there are differences, there is also unity at the same time. And, uni- and the uni- unity is not ultimately unity for unity's sake, but it is a unity that is centered on and focused on the glory of God. That is the purpose of the unity within the Godhead, to glorify God, and it should be the purpose of of the unity within a marriage as well. But going beyond marriage, I think that this Trinitarian picture of unity, despite diversity, is meant to be imaged in the church, imaged in the Jesus tribe as well. What do you have in the church? You have a collection of persons who are, in one sense, very different. People of different ethnic backgrounds, social situations, what have you. Uh, You have a collection of people in the church who have different roles in the church, different functions in the church, different giftings, different levels of authority in the church. And yet, at the same time, no one in the church is inferior to anyone else. No one in the church is to be considered of lesser value Uh, than someone else in the church. And they are all united towards one common goal, the glory of God, just as we see in the Trinity. A church where there is prejudice and racism, uh, a church where some are considered less important than others, a church that is not loving one another and serving one another, a church that is, that's a church that is totally sending a warped and perverted image of life within the, the Trinity Uh, we're sending a warped image to the world, and we are communicating false images of God. Another important thing we get from the doctrine of the Trinity is that it further underscores the uh, incredible self-sufficiency of God. A lot of times when we talk about the self-sufficiency of God, we talk about it in terms of His existence, We say that humans are not self-sufficient because they are always dependent on some kind of outside factor to keep them existing. If those conditions are not met, we don't exist. If I don't get food, I don't exist. If I don't have air, I don't exist. I'm not self-sufficient because I'm I'm, uh, dependent on other factors to keep me going. That's not true of God. God is 
self-sufficient, and he is not dependent on any outside factor for his existence. But the self-sufficiency of God goes beyond that, goes beyond just existence. In the doctrine of the Trinity, we see that God is so self-sufficient that not only does he not need anything else for his existence, he does not even need anything else or anyone else for relationships. He doesn't need anyone else for community. He doesn't need man. He doesn't need you. All you need for community is two persons. And in the Godhead, you have three. So he didn't create Adam and Eve out of loneliness because he lacked fellowship. I've, I've read literature sometimes that kind of gives you that impression. Well, you know, God, God wants some other people to, you know, uh, to have fellowship with because he was by himself. And he lacked fellowship. That wasn't it. And God wasn't bored. And God wasn't sitting around thinking, man, it is tough being by myself. I'm going to make some humans to hang out with. God the Father had perfect and happy fellowship with the Son and the Spirit before creation. That is absolutely, positively huge. God doesn't need you for fellowship. He doesn't need you for relationship. God is so self-sufficient that even that he has on his own. This makes God totally different than any other God in any other religion out there. He is perfectly unique in this. Think about the false God of Islam. Think about Allah. Allah didn't have that. Okay? There, there's no Trinitarian scheme in Muslim theology, in the Quran. Allah lacked relationships before creation. If Allah is to have community, and you know, thinking in the Muslim, if Allah was a real God, if if Allah is to have community, he is dependent on someone else outside of himself for that. But that's not the case with the God of the Bible. That's not the case with Yahweh. And understanding this relational aspect of God is huge. It explains why you are relational. It explains why you crave fellowship and need companionship. And, and want friends because we are made in the image of God. We are made to be like God. And one of the ways we image God is through fellowship with other persons. Exactly the way God had fellowship with other persons even before humans were ever created. It's probably one of the reasons why the God of the Bible is much more relational than Allah. In Muslim theology, Allah is impersonal. Allah is distant. There's, there is no intimate relationship between Allah and his followers. And no wonder, because being relational is not an important part of his being. Because there were no relationships before humans were created in the Muslim worldview. Yet with the true God, relationships are an essential part of his being. And so it makes sense why God desires to have a relationship with his people, and it makes sense why people are relational. Relationships and community are not just important to God, they are a part of his very nature. In the Muslim worldview, Allah before creation and eternity past not only lacked relationships, but he had no opportunity to express love to anyone because it was just, all, it was just him all by himself in eternity past. There is an incompleteness about that, isn't there? Think on the other hand about the true God, the God of the Bible. Before humans were created, there was love being given and love being received in the Godhead. The Father loved the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loved them both. There was perfect love and harmony and relationship and fellowship in eternity past. And it's just one more way in which the God of the Bible is seen as superior to other gods. 
And yet the mind-boggling thing is that even though God did not need man for these things, he created man for these things. These are not the only reasons he created man. He created man to glorify himself in a whole bunch of ways. He created man as an opportunity to glorify himself through showing mercy to unrepentant sinners. He created man as an opportunity to glorify himself through judging unrepentant sinners. But he also created man as someone to shower his love upon and his favor upon. He created man to have community with God. And it is significant uh, that we see in the Bible, God did not create man to turn him loose and let man do his own thing. From the very beginning, God desired community with men. And after humans sin and break community with God in Genesis 3, we see God throughout the rest of Scripture working to repair that broken fellowship between God and man. When the nation of Israel was in the wilderness, God had Moses build the tabernacle, this tent where the presence of God was going to manifest itself. And this tent was not situated in some far-off place miles and miles and miles away from the Israelites. It was rather put right in the middle of the camp, which I think is a beautiful picture of God's desire to be right in the thick of things, right in the midst of his people. Going back to the Gospel of John, the book of John, John says in John 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word dwelt that John uses can be translated as tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Again, pointing us back to God's heart, which is to have a people for himself, a, a tribe, if you will, which he desires to, he desires to dwell with his people uh, in this community and to be with them. You think about the climax of the book of Revelation. The climax of the book of Revelation is God fully dwelling with his people at long last in the age to come. Uh, Revelation 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And that brings me to my final point. That man is meant to be in community with God. And what we learn in Genesis is that though man is meant to be in community with God, we can't choose on what terms to be in community with God. We can't, we can't choose how we are to relate to God. Some people will say, well, I believe in God and I'll just come to him my own way. I'll just kind of do my own thing and I'll just connect with him however I see fits. No. It wasn't left up to us to determine how we're to relate to God. And we see right away in Genesis 1 how man is to relate to God. If you look with me in Genesis 1, verses, uh, starting at verse 28, there's a pattern here I want to show you. Verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then look at verse 29. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And then go to chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but don't eat from this tree. Do you notice a pattern here? You see a pattern? Chapter 1, verse 28, and God said to them. Chapter 1, verse 29, and God said. Chapter 2, verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying. This is a start of a pattern that continues all throughout Scripture. 
How are we to relate to God? We are to relate to God by His Word. By what He says. In fact, all of creation relates to God through His Word. Even the very beginning of the universe comes about in existence because of God's Word. God speaks and the universe leaps into existence. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And throughout Genesis 1, you see God speaking and things happening and coming into being in accordance with the words of his mouth. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says this of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So all of creation is meant to revolve and be sustained by God's word. And it is, it is likewise true with Adam, and it is true with you and me as well. And what we see with Adam in the garden is the start of a pattern that is going to be reappearing over and over and over again throughout the Bible. We are totally dependent on the word of God. We are to relate to God by his word. We are to relate to God by what he tells us. And everything hinges on our belief or disbelief of his word. This is exactly why when the serpent comes to Eve in Genesis 3 to tempt her, to attack her, how does he do it? He comes to her, and what are the very first words that he says? Did God really say? Satan knows that the way to kill you is to get you to disbelieve and reject the word of God. The word of God is what tethers us to God. It is the foundation of how we have community and fellowship with Him. We live by the Word of God and we die by the Word of God. And the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God tells Adam, you will surely what? You will surely die. So we see belief and acceptance of the Word leads to life. Unbelief and rejection of the Word leads to death. We are to relate to God through His Word. We are to have community with God through His Word, by His Word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is all about the Word. This is why knowing this book is so important. This is why it's important to study it, to grow in your understanding of it, to memorize it. You cannot have a meaningful relationship, meaningful community with God apart from knowing His Word. And ultimately, His Word, His revelation, everything in this book, from Genesis to Revelation, all of the words in these pages are pointing us to one thing. And that is Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God in the ultimate sense. Jesus is God's last word. God's final and ultimate revelation to mankind, as the scripture says in Hebrews, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is God's last word. And just as the warning was given to Adam, that if you disbelieve and reject the word of God, you shall surely die... So the warning stands today. God's warning to Adam, the day that you eat of that fruit, from that tree you'll die, 
is like the warning that Jesus gives to us when he says, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you shall die in your sins. Both warnings are the same. Both warnings are are to not reject the word of God. Both warnings are telling you that your life is in peril when you reject the word of God. In Adam's case, it was the spoken word of God. In our case today is the living word of God, Jesus Christ. So it was with Adam, it is with us. Life and community with God hinges on whether you or I accept or reject the Word of God. So my question for you this morning is, are you in community with God? Are you in fellowship with Him? Now this question really is for all of you, even if you are a believer, because believers can go through periods of sin, periods of rebellion, and believers can fall out of a fellowship with God. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian and you are in a state of sin and rebellion against God right now, it doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. You're not. Once you're in the Jesus tribe, you don't get kicked out. This is not like Survivor. The tribe is spoken and your lamp is distinguished or extinguished or whatever. You're in. But what it does mean is that, you, that, that if you are a Christian and you are, there's a, 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 a portion of your life that is in rebellion against God, what it means is, is that you can't fully enjoy fellowship with God right now, and you can't be fully happy because there's some stuff between you and him that you've got to work out, that you've got to deal with. And today is the time for you to get back into enjoying community with God, and you need to repent and turn back to him. And God always takes his children back. If a good earthly father will receive his repentant children, how much more will your father in heaven receive you? Now, there may be some of you in here that are not sons or daughters of God, You are not in God's family. You're not in the Jesus tribe. And if there is anyone here who is not a believer, in other words, not a Christ follower, not one who has really given up his life or her life to Jesus, please know that community and sweet fellowship with God is available. You can be at peace with God. You can be a part of God's family. God told Adam, the day you eat of this fruit, you shall die. The day you reject my word, you shall die. And today, death is the destiny of all who reject Jesus Christ, the word of God. Why? Because you're a sinner. God is just. And the penalty for sin is death. And this death is climaxed in a place called hell where you will forever endure God's wrath. And you know what one of the worst things about hell is? One of the worst things about hell is that those who are there will be completely and utterly alone. There will be no community with God. There will be no community with others. Sometimes I I hear people say, kind of mockingly, I don't care if I go to hell, it's not going to be all that bad because all my friends are going to be there too. So we're going to be partying in hell. It's going to be great. We won't have this God to worry about and deal with. And you have this image of a, of a group of rebellious people having a great party because they're together, fellowshipping in their rebellion against God. And that's not the case. Hell is not a party. You won't be enjoying fellowship with anyone in hell. You will be completely and utterly alone forever. You think it would be bad to be stranded on a deserted island for four years like that guy in Castaway? That doesn't hold a candle to the horrifying reality of hell. You won't even have time to imagine fellowship. 
you won't even have time to create an imaginary friend because you will be weeping the whole time. The Bible says that hell is a place of weeping, gnashing of teeth, great sorrow, constant pain and suffering. Pastor Steve last week talked about how one of the most feared punishments in our justice system is solitary confinement. The reason why it's so feared is because whether they know it or not, these prisoners are getting a small foretaste of hell. But the worst part of hell is not that your friends won't be with you. The worst part is that you will have missed out on the most beautiful and wonderful and satisfying and pleasurable thing in the world. And that is sweet fellowship and community with God, who is the greatest treasure of all. But it doesn't have to be that way. Scripture says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. By the way, another verse that talks about distinctions within the Godhead. You have the Father sending the Son. He sends his Son. He gave his Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ suffered hell on the cross. He suffered a break in community with God the Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's feeling that that anguish of being out of community with God. He endured the anguish of that on the cross so that all who believe in him wouldn't have to go through that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, the scripture says. Believe in Jesus so that what Jesus did and went through on the cross will count for you. You will either have the price for your sins paid for by Jesus or you will pay for them yourself forever. And I say, why die when you can live? Starting right here right now and not only will you escape hell but even better you will get God and you'll be able to enjoy community and fellowship with him forever which is worth more than all of the riches of this world and worth more than all of the pleasures of sin or anything else that you could have receive Jesus enter into true fellowship with God receive forgiveness of sins become a part of the Jesus tribe a bunch of ex-rebels lawbreakers and outlaws who committed treason against God and have now found that this same God who could have rightly executed them for insurrection has now adopted them into his family and he has become their father. What a great and glorious and wonderful God that we serve who would do something like that and to invite us into fellowship with him even though he didn't need it. What a great God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for you. (laughs) You are so big and awesome and hard to understand. I know this Trinity thing can blow our minds. And yet, God, we humbly bow the knee and recognize that we are not God and you are. And we confess and acknowledge our ignorance And we are humbled by our lack of understanding, which further points to your greatness. God, thank you that even though you don't need to have fellowship with people, you want to. You desire that. You love that. And I pray for anyone here today that has not had any kind of fellowship with you that has not crossed over from death into life. 
that this would be the day that they would enter into that communion with you, that they would be united to you by faith, that they would receive forgiveness of sins, and that they would know what it is to enjoy the pleasures of God. Thank you for giving us what we do not deserve, namely you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. just sing about what a good thing it is that we can know God and that he does know us and he desires um, to be close with us for us to be close with him in the secret in the secret in the quiet place in stillness you are there in the secret in the quiet hour I wait only for you cause I want to know you more I want to know you
God, thank you that we can know you. I pray that we would call upon you while you are near, God. We have this opportunity, Lord, in this life to know you, to go after you, to seek you, to push every hindrance aside to know you, God. Lord, you say in your word that um, if we seek you with all of our hearts, um, we, you will be found by us, God. Thank you that you also seek us. You're the one who loved us first. You're the one who pursues us first. Thank you. Amen. Just a couple of announcements and then um, you'll be dismissed. So, yeah, well, you can sit if you want to. I was going to try to be quick, but y'all can sit. Go ahead and sit. If half of you are sitting, half of you are standing, it's not going to work. So all of you sit. Be unified. Unity. Come on. Um, community groups reminder this week, we have them on Tuesday night and Wednesday night, Tuesday night's over here at the, the Bruzy house and Wednesday night is at uh, Deemer's house. And, um, if you haven't joined one, but you want to join one, it's not too late. Don't worry. Matter of fact, Deemer's group has only gotten one lesson in so far. So his still joinable. Uh, it's a big group, but it's joinable. And, uh, so is our group. So, um, uh, join up if you still would like to be part of a community group. I think most people in here already are. Um, again, just very last minute, if you're wanting to go to the um, uh, the marriage retreat that Anchor is having, the information's there in your bulletin. You can still sign up for that as far as I know. I know it's, uh, it's this next week. Uh, it's coming up at the end of this week, so um, I believe. So if you want to do that, just contact Anchor Church, and their number is there. I just want to also uh, bring your attention to a couple other things. We are going to be having a financial seminar here on March 4th and 5th about personal finances. Um, this is a really interesting seminar. I'd really love for you guys, as many of y'all, to make it as you can. Uh, we're joining in with other t- two other churches to do this. And there is a fee for coming to the financial seminar. But I'd hate for finances to be a reason you don't come to the financial seminar. So please don't let that hinder you. Uh, if you're wanting to come, just talk to me. We can get you there uh, to this conference. I think it's going to be very good uh, to participate in. And finally... Um, we're coming up just a few weeks from our um, fellowship meal again, and we're, we, just to show you the lack of creativity amongst the leadership of the church, we are kind of recycling ideas now, so it is going to be Italian delight again, uh, and that's coming up in a couple of weeks, and that's always a good time of community and fellowship. Thank you, Deemer, for your message, for taking us into the depths of the doctrine of the Trinity, and you guys are dismissed to head down to Deemer's class. Kids, stay here. We've got a couple of songs before you head to Rewind, so kids right here. Adults downstairs.